whether reconciling Christmas with its inherent deceptions is necessary. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. And right up front, I'll say that this probably is not going to be an episode of Walk the Earth that's ideal for kids. It's not that it's going to carry an explicit language tag, although I can't be 100% certain where I'm going to go as I look at the question of some of the things related to Christmas as a holiday or as a religious event that you know, I could go in an adult direction if I chose to. I don't intend to, but I am going to deal with some things that I would understand parents of younger children not wanting to be discussed while um, they're driving down the road with kids in the backseat of the car. Because among other things, when I'm looking at this question of some of the uh, inherent deceptions related to Christmas, it seems to me that there's one of them that is more obvious than any other, and I will get to that here in just a moment. But first, I don't often do housekeeping in association with Walk the Earth episodes, but I I want to do it now, and I'll do it right at the beginning, both to uh, create a segue into the topic and to buy a little bit of time. You can listen to Walk the Earth at iTunes, where it can be found on the same feed with Inappropriate Conversations. Inappropriate Conversations podcast is also the key if you wanted to listen to Walk the Earth on Stitcher. The Inappropriate Conversations feed, in other words, has both of the two podcasts on it. I also have gotten to the point where I finally shared for the first time a Walk the Earth episode on SoundCloud. Now, the SoundCloud account, which is IC underscore Greg, has not yet reached the point of hitting the beginning of Walk the Earth from an origin perspective. But a couple of months ago, I did share in its entirety, Walk the Earth 30 seemed like an important episode to get out there right away because it was recorded live before a studio in in Las Vegas, Nevada this past August. So you can listen to Inappropriate Conversations via iTunes or Zoom or other podcatchers, but also on Stitcher and also, uh, at least starting now, on SoundCloud. When it comes to correspondence, I can also be reached via that IC underscore Greg sort of tagline. I'm at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com for email correspondence. And I am hoping that I get very quickly to a Your Points and Questions show on inappropriate conversations. It might be as soon as January or February, if I have my way. Meaning, if you've got some feedback to provide, now would be an excellent time to do so. At uh, IC underscore Greg is my Twitter handle. So uh, for both shows, I use that to uh, interact and to post articles I'm looking at and thinking through. And that's also what I do on Facebook. There's a Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations, and there's also a Facebook page for Walk the Earth. And it is there that I've posted something recent that was meant to be comic, but really struck me as being kind of pretty close to the topic I'm trying to deal with today. It was a Venn diagram of sorts with um, four overlapping uh, areas of authority, I guess I would call them. God... Santa, Spider-Man, and the Spanish Inquisition, bringing together three distinct disciplines. Uh, One is great power and great responsibility, where the overlap was uh, God, Santa, and Spider-Man, or knows if you've been naughty or nice, where that's God, Santa, and the Spanish Inquisition, or wears a red suit, which they've got as being 
Spider-Man Santa and the Spanish Inquisition. What I want to talk about in this show, if I don't get to anything else related to the things we do that are deceptive around Christmas time, is to talk about Santa. So obviously it's easy to see how maybe that wouldn't be the best content for parents who do maintain the Santa mythology within their households. So let me just start by saying I don't think that's the only deception to be managed here. So when I'm talking about things where we deceive ourselves, the church has a laundry list of things for which they may one day prove to be accountable. And it's not just, in this case, the relationship of Protestant Christianity in particular with the Santa Claus mythology. And the extremes some will go to, where there's one end of the spectrum where uh, the uh, the more... I guess cultic forms of Christianity, I would call them, uh, would ban Santa altogether. The Santa is Satan crowd, I guess would be how I would describe them. The uh, people who are more focused on being separate from the world than actually going and making disciples. That That's a good way of thinking about that distinction. And then you've got the other extreme, where a great deal of effort is made in trying to bring Santa into tr- traditional Christian mythology, usually through the person of Saint Nicholas, And you get into an interesting place where at some point you have to stop in your tracks and say, yes, but the law of physics kind of do apply here. And the risk, of course, to me is, if you make too much of an emphasis over a mythology that you know is false, to what degree will that raise questions in the minds of, call call them, tween-age kids, when they finally do get the lowdown on the Santa thing, may begin to question the validity of other mythologies, which perhaps in the minds of some believers or most believers are not patently false. So you can try to bring the Santa mythology and the Jesus mythology together all you want to, but all it ultimately does by merging them is to make it that much more difficult for a child who grows up to figure out which baby to throw out with the bathwater. And that becomes the real challenge. So when I ask the question in this particular Walk the Earth about whether it's necessary to reconcile these deceptions that are inherent in the way Americans in particular celebrate Christmas, I think the the answer probably is yes. Because at some point, you're going to have to deal with the fact, if you are a believer, that some of the things that I've told my child since they were too young to even understand the words were false, and I knew they were false, and it was almost as if me playing a good kind of practical joke for years and years and years on those kids, where the other extreme would be something that I believe is true, but I'm no more able to prove it, at least in the the court of law kind of sense of proving it, or in the the, uh, laboratory environment kind of sense, than I'm able to prove any of the Santa stuff that I don't really believe in the first place. So... I think that there's got to be a way of dealing with that and sort of reconciling the truth without maybe going overboard. Again, avoiding those two extremes. In the first year of Inappropriate Conversations, I named uh, conservative business writer Larry Wingett as a different drummer. And I don't really pay too much attention here lately to what he's done in broadcast form because I, I tend to shy completely away from Fox News. My attitude about television news in general and in principle is that life is very short, and I'd prefer to have less time to spend ferreting out misinformation and bias. Therefore, any resource, regardless of where it fits on the political spectrum, that I believe is full of misinformation and bias, I just soon avoid. But when gets introduced some principles that have stuck with me all these years, I found them in the course of reading books about uh, customer service and effective business collaboration, 
But I've been able to apply them in other aspects. I've certainly found that they work, or at least they are uh, a functional idea within a church setting, for example. And the one I'll cite right now is this 20-60-20 rule. In the context of a work environment, he basically said that 20% of the people who work for you are superstars, and probably the best thing you can do as an effective manager is to stay out of their way and leave them alone. They get it. They'll ask for help if they need it. Don't micromanage these guys. Then there's 20% who are complete and absolute slackers. They're dead weight. They're an anchor. They're dragging you down. And then you probably should be in the process of weeding them out. But then there's that 60% in the middle. And that 60% is neither great nor terrible, um, neither an anchor dragging you down nor superstars. And that's the group to manage because eventually that top 20% is going to move on. They're either going to take a key leadership role by advancing through your company and no longer performing the functions that they do today, or they're going to get picked up by some other organization who values that kind of uh, work ethic. They won't disappear. It's not like the 20% becomes 10 or 5 or dwindles to nothing. There's people sitting in that middle, in that 60% group, who when that power vacuum gets created, they step up. They've been preparing themselves for months, maybe years, for this opportunity, and now the opportunity presents itself. But he said, the inverse is also true, that you get this 20% of slackers on the other side, where as soon as you've let a certain percentage of those people go, then somebody in the middle 60 is going to slide down, slack off, and replace their function within this pie chart, where the the uh, sizes of the slices of the pie don't really change. It's just who's occupying those places. Now, I don't know whether there's that much organizational theory to back this up. I don't believe that I'm any more interested in proving that than I am on trying to prove Santa exists. But the theory is there, and that in this case, you're going to have some people who are in a 20 percentile group where they spend all their time denying that there's such a thing as Santa to where they don't have a lie to reconcile because their kids being quote Christian unquote never get to participate in the secular experience of Christmas. And then you've got that other extreme on the other side that the 20% that is so committed to the idea of merging these two things together that you occasionally, it's rare, but you occasionally encounter somebody that you wonder if they don't think that Santa is just as real as Jesus. And what that leads you to is the problem of maybe they don't believe that there's an historic Santa, you know, anymore, aside from the St. Nicholas you know, story. But then maybe they don't believe there's an historic Jesus either. So you get that, that problem. And what I want to speak to instead is that 60% in the middle. People who perhaps are part of the church or part of the mainstream American culture, such that America being a somewhat unique country, I don't like, never have liked the Christian nation terminology, but we have this interesting thing in the United States where all of us seem to participate in Christmas. And I know that's not true. There are minority religious groups. In fact, I want to focus a little bit on that kind of notion in the next Walk the Earth. But there are minority religious groups. But even for the most part, we sort of expect that people who are part of a non-Christian religious group will humor the rest of us as Christmas sort of takes over media and commerce for a couple of months between the middle of November and the early part of January. And I think you know, there's nothing to say about that except it's sort of a fact of being an American. What I do resent is how some people feel entitled and privileged by that, such that if a local restaurant decided to use a generic cup for the holidays instead of something that had 
um, Santa or Frosty the Snowman on it, that that could actually cause some sort of widespread internet uproar and uh, protests even. Seems strange to me, but again, I think that's part of these two sets of 20% that I'm really trying to ignore. For the most part, the rest of us, I think, function within Christmas as a holiday. Now, to get into the specifics of Christmas as a holiday, there's a couple things I don't think I need to deal with. One of them is the fact that we don't really know when Jesus was born. In the last couple of episodes of Walk the Earth, I've taken a look at a variety of holidays, including Christmas, just to talk about the the pagan nature of many of our celebrations and how historically it was politically expedient to try to tap in the new religion into the timeline where people were already taking time off and celebrating in a large group. Makes sense. So I won't go there again. I'm also not interested in using this particular Walk the Earth episode to make any sort of emphatic truth claims about any of the particular notions of the nativity story. In other words, I'm not going to take this time to make any of my own personal points of view about the incarnation known widely and clearly. For me, that's that's a place where I don't feel any real urgent need to tread. Defending the virginity of Mary, for example, doesn't strike me as all that important to do. Talking about the actual translation in the prophecies of Isaiah as referring specifically to a young girl and not necessarily to a girl who'd never had sexual intercourse before. Again, it seems like an unnecessary diversion. The fact of the matter is that the Christian church has always had a large, a large amount of self-deception, if you can refer to a collective body this way, when it comes to human sexuality. And it's one of the things that you'll see me share from time to time, if not on the Walk the Earth Facebook page, certainly on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page. And I did so recently, I believe over on Inappropriate Conversations, talking about the problem we have when we presume that church tradition and church fathers, to coin a phrase, have any solid intellectual ground that needs to be defended. In other words, I think there's enough reason to be a little bit careful and hesitant about being too harsh and rigid in defending the truth claims of Scripture. But to me, it's sheer folly to spend a lot of time taking a rigid position defending the truth claims of traditional views of the church that fall outside of Scripture. Here's the post that I shared on Inappropriate Conversations. It was taking a uh, comic jab at the uh, pro-life worldview, which is not a worldview that I consider myself to be strongly aligned with. The caption of an Occupy Wall Street uh, cartoon was, If birth control logic were applied to men, it's a cartoon that has a man walking out of an adult movie theater booth where a bunch of women are standing outside with bullhorns and, and signs of protest. And the signs, one of the signs reads, Life begins at erection. And the other one says, Masturbation is murder. I use this to take a springboard into some of the things which could come up in conversations around whether there's truthfulness in uh, Mary's virginity, for example. And I, I hit it this way. You see, church thinkers from the past had false assumptions that still drive political conservatives to this day. For example, when Roman Catholic sexual ethics were forming, their understanding of ejaculation was that men had a single seed, not thousands upon thousands of sperm, and that all women really contributed to reproduction was providing a nest. These false assumptions are still foundational to pro-life politics today and leading some people to commit murder in the name of, quote, life, unquote. So 
when I've spoken about this before, in fact, I think I hit it in a segment early on, going all the way back to Inappropriate Conversations 8 and the Christian response to the sexual revolution, talking a little bit about whether there still are people who believe that um, man has a single seed, uh, that when uh, the Bible has a passage talking about spilling your seed on the ground, that that's really a, a singular idea and not hundreds of thousands of sperm, and that women contribute the egg to that, and that this joining is very much a, a mutual act of creation. Because I think what you see when you start dealing with obsessions with the Virgin Mary is a bit of a purity cult within parts of Christianity. It's the same thing that leads the uh, willing-to-wait movement, where fathers take an almost creepily obsessive interest at times in the sexual development of their daughters. It's that notion of having a clean and pure nest, as if Mary had nothing else to offer the process of creation than that. And it's interesting how it sort of rebels against Scripture in some ways, because the passages of genealogy between Matthew and Luke seem to indicate that from a Scripture writer's perspective, the genealogy of Mary was viewed as being more relevant and more important than perhaps anybody would have expected for a woman in that era, in that particular patriarchal society. So, having said I didn't want to deal with it, I guess I did deal with it a little bit, but I explained, I explained it only in the context of saying why I'm not going there. Why am I not interested in it? Because I don't know, I don't know that it's that important. My faith certainly doesn't hinge upon whether or not Mary was a virgin, and it certainly does not hinge on whether Mary's parents were somehow not responsible for her conception in any sort of an endless regression of, of purity that um, doesn't make sense, but probably does have validity in certain corners of Roman Catholicism in particular. No, I want to st stay instead more on the secular side of the fence and look simply at Santa, because I think we all could stipulate without too much trouble that nobody who isn't part of the 60%, and really I'm talking about maybe more like the 99%, nobody really believes that there is a magical elf living at the North Pole commanding an army of toy manufacturing elves with magic flying reindeer, uh, that e even if you bought all that stuff, that somehow the, uh, the borders of time and space disappear on one night of the year. We all sort of know that this thing is pure mythology, and it leads to interesting problems and questions. So where do I stand on it? Well, as a parent, we did do the Santa thing. And one of the interesting things that happens, I think, when uh, two, again, in our case, two Protestant Christian Americans, and, and for my wife and I, our, there wasn't much distance between us. We grew up in the same part of the country. Our parents shared very similar ages, very similar career trajectories, although in different uh, different industries. And we were both part of the same denomination, so we weren't just Protestants together, but we were United Methodist Protestants together. So you would have thought that bringing the two of us together and forming a new union wouldn't have had that many surprises when it comes to things like how do you celebrate Christmas. We didn't have to have an argument as to whether to celebrate at all. Neither one of us were part of those two extremes, those two 20% groups, in other words. But you did have things that popped up right away. So when I was a kid growing up, there were presents that were wrapped under the tree that were from Santa. You would even have a, a, a label on them, to Greg, from Santa. But when my wife's family was growing up, it was a totally different thing. Anything that was under the tree that was not wrapped was presumed to have been from Santa. So I would get presents under the tree, even if some significant assembly was required 
that were still in a box, wrapped in wrapping paper, with a label on it that said it was from Santa. And even the gifts from Santa might require you to spend a couple hours or more on a Christmas morning putting together the toy that had some assembly required. Whereas on the other side of town, where my wife, who I had not yet met, was celebrating Christmas, for them, the Santa gifts were not wrapped at all. They weren't boxed anymore at all. And they were coming fully assembled, meaning that for her parents, the late night Christmas Eve, setting out toys and doing final decorations and filling stockings and eating a piece of cookie and a piece of carrot to make it appear that Santa had indeed drunk the milk and eaten the cookie that the kids had set aside for Santa and that maybe Rudolph had even been inside the house and had a bite of carrot or the the carrot had been taken outside but not finished and the rest was put back on the plate neatly. All, all those sort of other things that were perhaps part of the ritual. A ritual that I'm guessing varies depending on what part of the country you might be from. But for their, for her parents, they had this extra burden of what, again, for me, at times was a two hours of, of some assembly required, putting toys and gifts together. And for them, I think they perhaps had an advantage in that Cheryl's father had an engineering background. And maybe you give me one of those toys with 100 moving parts that has to be assembled just right to even work. And that's two hours. And maybe for him, it was only 20 minutes. I don't know. Still an extra chore to do. And maybe that ex explains a little bit why I was probably only in kindergarten or first grade at the latest when I figured out the whole Santa thing. Because if you go on one of those trips where you cross the country because you're celebrating Christmas at Grandma's house, uh, you as a, as a kid, bored in a long car ride, snooping around, you might see the same wrapping paper that later Santa would be using. And as a parent, you have to go to the even more ridiculous extremes. If you want to maintain the practical joke of Santa... And I'm not trying to be dismissive. I'm just trying to make a distinction between um, which ideas we're going to invest the most, most truth claim in. Because I might have asked my parents why this wrapping paper was Santa's when I'd seen the same wrapping paper on a present that my older brother had wrapped and given to my older sister. And I might have gotten some sort of silly response. Like sometimes on a snowy night, the wrapping paper that the elves put on it could get wet or damaged in some way. And it's not beyond Santa to use the wrapping paper he finds in the house that he's in to rewrap presents for that particular kid. And, and that's the reason why the wrapping paper with Santa's name on it looks a lot like the wrapping paper that has other presents, you know, presents wrapped by an older brother or by parents given to other members of the family. It seems like at some point there's just a silliness to that, especially in my case, because I was in the very deepest part of South Texas at the time, uh, that particular Christmas, where I kind of realized that the encyclopedia books that I'd asked for and that I got, uh, how and why books, I believe is what they were called, that uh, had presumably come from Santa, were already wrapped in paper that I'd seen being packed in the car and traversed across you know, state lines. And that's kind of what happened with my daughter and the Easter Bunny. I've shared this story before, and I'm not sure which inappropriate conversations it was, but we had an urgent need to travel from Ohio to Oklahoma to celebrate with my sister before Easter. In fact, it was actually ended up being right there on uh, Easter Sunday weekend because her health was not good. She did not survive the year fighting off multiple forms of cancer. And it just played out that my work and my wife's work gave us the time off. It was a little bit of a better time of the year to take the kids out of school. 
So we were able to use a, a spring break right after uh, you know the holy week of spring break to make this trip. And to get across that many state lines quickly, you end up flying. And to fly, you end up packing things in suitcases that you otherwise might have taken more time and effort to conceal in a car for a long car trip. And my daughter, I think, had pieced together some of the things that she'd seen in luggage as coming into an Easter basket later that weekend as coming from the Easter Bunny, which sort of called into question for her the the validity of the Easter Bunny as a myth. And I needed to have a long conversation with her about the Easter Bunny and to do so in such a way that neither her younger brother nor her younger nephews, who lived in that part of the country, would have anything spoiled for them. And so if you buy into this notion that these uh, these holidays, these these Santa Easter Bunny Tooth Fairy kind of things are you know, perhaps benignly viewed as a practical joke that parents play on kids. And if it is that, it's a good practical joke because practical jokes, of course, can run the spectrum from, you know, there's mean surprises and there's nice surprises. Right. So this is more along the lines of of a man wanting to propose to a young woman, um, not tipping her off right away and, and popping the question in a in a surprising way. It's more along those lines. But the Easter Bunny was revealed because we made a family trip hurriedly planned to people who lived out of state. And likewise for me, when I was very young, Santa was revealed on a, a trip that started with like an eight or nine hour car ride and ended up with me being in, in my grandma's house or my aunt and uncle's house, during Christmas. So, for my son, we had a particularly interesting conversation when we moved from where we used to live in the kind of the heart of the heart of the country into Ohio, where we live now. Because in the process of making that trip, he was probably not yet kindergarten. He was preschool-aged. And he had, you know, we always, his only experience of Santa Claus had been in the first house that we lived in. Um, my daughter was born when we still lived in a renter's situation in a townhouse. But not even before, we didn't even get to her first year birthday before we'd moved into a home. And that first house of ours was where my son was born. So he had always had one single chimney to conceive of Santa coming down and one location for a Christmas tree in the living room. He'd only seen it done one way. But when we when we sold that house and moved and traveled you know, three or four states away... In the process of doing that, he then suddenly had a new house where there, among the questions that my kids had, we moved into the home in October, were questions about where the Christmas tree was going to go. And this house had a problem in the mind of my youngest that the other house didn't. And that the house that we lived in when we moved to this part of the country didn't have a fireplace. I've owned three houses, I believe, in my life. And that's the only one that didn't have a fireplace. It was laid out like a quad, and it's just one of the one of the features that that particular home didn't have. And my son might have actually lost sleep over the fact that if we didn't have a chimney, then Santa wasn't going to be able to come down. And if Santa wasn't going to be able to come down the chimney, then he might not get any presents. And what a terrible decision we'd made to move here, and what a terrible house we'd decided to buy. And so it requires some explaining. And um, my favorite new release in music, at least in the last couple of months, is a Christmas album by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. I've been a fan of Sharon Jones for quite some time. I can remember, in fact, listening to Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings while making a trip and talking with my wife about what the content might be of the fourth episode of Inappropriate Conversations. 
That means that I probably was aware of Sharon Jones before the even the first one of these podcasts was recorded, uh, because I was certainly discussing her and the band The Dap Kings as a musical group, as a musical force, in my opinion, going back more than five years, almost six years now, probably. But they've released a Christmas album, and it includes a track called There Ain't No Chimneys in the Ghetto. And it's the same concept where uh, young daughter version, the character that Sharon Jones is portraying, having a conversation all those years ago with mother about there not being any chimneys in the projects and how Santa's supposed to come and deliver the gifts. And it's not my favorite song off the new Sharon Jones album, but it's one of them. And part of it is because it reminds me of the kinds of conversations we had with my son at the time. And it includes the same kind of ridiculous things that you end up telling kids as a, does a, uh, a fireplace magically appear. Well, that was never going to work for uh, my son. He's always been, even at that young of an age, you could see the beginning of an analytical mind coming. And we basically just said that Yosanta has more than one way of getting in and that uh, where there is a chimney, that's his preferred approach. <clears throat> but where there's not a chimney, he's got, he's got other ways of getting in because anybody who could uh, shapeshift enough to get down even some of the dirtiest chimneys out there might be able to shapeshift his way into the house through some other means. But it was a conversation we had to have because I didn't want moving into this new career and this new job and this new city and this new house to be tainted with the Santa myth being revealed. It seemed like it was not the right time for that natural progression to occur. And my daughter, I think, maintained the... uh, maintained the belief in all these things much, much longer. And then I began to get worried because as she and I were having the Easter Bunny conversation, I thought, wow, she has even more years of believing this built up. There's more collateral there. We've sidestepped more of these questions, like the chimney question that her brother had. And to what extent do you run the risk? If Christmas, which should be for Christians an important celebration, to me one of the three important celebrations, What if that suddenly becomes tainted by the lie, tainted by the deception, and how do you handle it? So this particular walk the earth is not really just looking at the question, the yes-no type question, of whether you have to deal with this notion of reconciling Christmas as a holiday with the deceptions that, that kind of come assumed with it in these stories about Frosty the Snowman and Santa Claus and everything else. It's not really a yes-no question. To me, it's more, how do you do it? Because I think the answer is, yes, you've got to deal with it. But it's really more, you need to deal with it in a really subtle way. It needs to be more like, ha-ha, you got me, the joke is up. Because, to me, that's a distinction between where, where my conversation might go if someone were to question my faith. Which is why I look at that other extreme, these two 20% groups. I've never felt that the existence of a cultural mythology around Santa Claus was in any way a threat or a dilution of my faith. But to the other group, I wouldn't want my children to think that it was or would be or should be, because I seem to place more of my emphasis there. To me, there's three important celebrations within Christianity, and two of them do get recognized, uh, recognized by retail, as a matter of fact. And the third, which might actually be the most important to me in my personal walk, as I've discussed earlier this year, in uh, specific Walk the Earth questions related to things like the Holy Spirit and Pentecost, that you've got these three stages in in Jesus's life. You've got Jesus came 
Jesus died, rose again, Jesus will come again. So to me, I almost look at it from a Trinitarian perspective and say, you know what? This this notion of Christmas is about something that God the Father does. There's a fatherhood thing here where, again, regardless of you know whether you've got a purity cult obsession with Mary's nest or not, there is this notion that uh, God is the Father, uh, that Jesus is begotten in this way, or at the very least, his entry into the world is an act of God's. And then with uh, Holy Week, with Easter, with this notion of arrest and trial and crucifixion and resurrection, the Easter story, that's uh, something that Christ did, that Jesus either did or allowed to have done. It's his actions, or again, his, uh, his acting by refusing to intervene, by refusing to stop others, uh, by refusing to exercise his power to say, oh, no, you don't. But then Pentecost comes along 50 days later, and it's the story of Jesus's prediction that the Holy Spirit would be sent, that the Holy Spirit would come, and that Christians today, and certainly Christians at that crucial moment, would suddenly have a relationship with God that had never been experienced by all but maybe a select few in the past. Then instead of dealing God dealing with the believers, the set of believers collectively, uh, like as a nation of Israel or Judah, or as a race of people like the Jews, that instead God was now saying that through the Holy Spirit, he was going to have a relationship with each one of us individually, that we were going to be picking up our cross and following Jesus as Jesus predicted we would, and that that would require individual action, and that where that was too hard for any individual to uh, live up to, that the Holy Spirit would come and cover that gap and make that difference. So you've got these celebrations of Christmas and Easter and Pentecost. And part of me is a little annoyed that Pentecost doesn't get anywhere near the attention it should as being the third of these Trinitarian ideas. But on the other hand, I feel kind of good about it and that we don't have any sort of you know super Holy Spirit sales going on uh, in the middle of May or June, depending on where Easter happens to fall on the calendar. So it's probably a good thing that we don't freak out and celebrate Pentecost Sunday or you know, or Ascension Sunday even in these kinds of crazy retail kind of ways. But it's noteworthy that we have so much culture that isn't related to scripture, isn't related to religion or faith, baked into Christmas in particular. And again, as I, I said earlier, Easter doesn't get off scot-free here either. You've got the Easter Bunny, but the whole... Um, Santa and Rudolph and Heat Miser and Snow Miser. I mean, you have all of these sort of characters which appear in a purely fictional way coming into the story at the time of Christmas. And to me, it's all one elaborate good joke that parents play on their kids. So my daughter, being my daughter, I guess would be the way I would word this, wasn't going to give up this Easter Bunny myth without getting a good, satisfactory answer to one question. Why? Inappropriate Conversations is built upon the idea of different drummer. Uh, my notion of having a conversation about a, pol a political topic or a religious topic would not have been something I would have invested the time to create a podcast around had it not been for different drummers, had it not been for that idea. But different drummer as a concept came from my journaling and really it came from me at a relatively young age, middle of high school, dealing with the question why and really finding the question itself to be as unsatisfactory as the answers to the question also tend to be. But I knew I couldn't dodge the question. 
I couldn't tell her what I would probably tell her years later when she got to be the same age I was when I became very disenfranchised with why as a question. I couldn't just say that why does it matter? I couldn't quote to her William Faulkner and say that nothing is even worth the changing of it. No, she really did need an answer. And so what I told her, my subtle way of reconciling the inherent deceptions in some of these cultural um, events that surround religious holidays like Christmas and Easter, was that the notion, especially of Christmas, Christmas most of all, but it's true of Easter as well, is that Christian worldview says that we as mere humans have been given a gift that is beyond our ability to even conceive, much less measure, monetize, or repay. That the gift of even the words and ideas of Jesus of Nazareth is huge. And the fact that if you're a Christian and you believe that there's more to the story than just that, especially if you believe that it's not just that Jesus did some some big word things like atonement and redemption on the cross, but the Holy Spirit comes into it as well, then you're really talking about something that is beyond the ability of your average American adult to comprehend. This is clear. It's so obviously clear. I took a fairly big break this month between the most recent episodes of Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth and this recording of Walk the Earth. And the one thing I did do during that time off was put a blog post up at the website, www.inappropriateconversations.org. I called it Candy-Coated Apostasy. It is one of the longer pieces that I've ever written for the website. It looks a little bit intimidating on the screen because there's a lot of scrolling to get past it to get to the most recent episode before this one. But I felt it had to be done. And in part, it was because even grown adults, even grown adults who contend that they're passionate Christians, seem to get confused about ideas like forgiveness, redemption, atonement. These ideas of the gift that we've been given that's worth more than anything you could possibly hold in your hands, if it's too much for some adults, then it's clearly always going to be too much for little kids. But what I told my daughter at the time was that it was really important for parents to try to find a way to give gifts to kids that were beyond just the gift from mom and dad or the gift from grandma and grandpa or the gift from your brother or your sister. That there needed to be some way, at Christmas time in particular, of giving the child something either to unwrap or to find magically constructed under the Christmas tree that would give you that sense of unmerited grace coming from someone that you have not and will not see. Again, if you think of it as nothing more than a practical joke, that probably works. But why would you go through the exercise of giving gifts at Christmas at all? That's a fair question. And there may come a time when we as a society begin to take a look at the downside of concentrating all of our retail commerce into just a few weeks at the end of the year and putting those weeks at what can often be a bad weather time of year, although weather's a bit of a given no matter what time of year you're looking at. But there's a lot of downsides to the way we do gift giving. And sometimes I think that begs the question of why we do the gift giving at all. But for me, the gift giving is and always has been a way, especially the gifts that come from the outsider, from beyond this world, from the realm of whether you call it magic or mythology, that it's important that children understand that if parents are going to church extra times 
during the month of December, if we're singing special songs during that time of year, it's because we are in our own way unwrapping a gift that is so beyond our ability to understand that comparing it to the magic or the laws of physics being broken by Santa, even Santa can't measure up to the incomprehensibility of the true Christmas story. So, if nothing else, maintaining this minor myth of an elf at the North Pole who makes toys and can transcend the laws of physics and break the boundaries of time by delivering toys all over the world in, in, this, in a single night, never being seen, and, uh, and always knowing just what to do for kids, whether they've been naughty or nice, all that sort of thing. It probably does make sense. And once the joke is up, that's another way of saying it also makes sense that until your younger brother or your younger sister or those nieces and nephews are old enough to be able to ask these questions themselves, then they're not yet old enough to have any hope of understanding what the actual Christian theology behind Christmas and the Nativity story is. And therefore, you shouldn't spoil it for them. That would be the same thing as canceling Christmas. Because Christmas to me as an adult has always meant different things. It's always meant more things than what Christmas tends to mean for the ABC family TV shows <laughs> that are built around that idea. I've never really spent much time watching any of the Santa Claus movies. Last I heard, there were three of them. It's not a mythology that I do much of my investing in. For me, and this is just to share more personally than I usually do, Christmas Eve is always going to be a very important day. It goes back to the very first time that I ever saw my wife. Uh, the, the chance meeting, as it were, happened on Christmas Eve between, for me, the 7 o'clock worship service and the 11 o'clock worship service, both of which I was planning to attend that night. So there's always going to be a, a crucial part of my most important relationships wrapped up into Christmas Eve, wrapped up into the 24th in particular. But that might be just me. For everyone else, though, if these cultural norms are the way that we first encounter this gift of wonder, it's probably okay if kids are unwrapping that gift or finding it under the tree for several years, especially if those are the years when they're too young to understand what the rest of the story is really all about. And again, I'm not interested in untangling any more of the myths of Santa Claus than that, and I'm certainly not all that interested in untangling any of the myths of Mary's virginity, Jesus' incarnation, or the birth I'm not all that interested in how many wise men and how long it took them to get there or any of the rest of the things which are related to whether December 25th is even the right day or not. Sophie B. Hawkins is a former different drummer. She's actually a pop singer, but she writes a lot of her own music and lyrics. And one of those lyrics from her very first album, a song called Save Your Child, says, There's a Savior born every day in the valley of your soul. I'm totally comfortable celebrating that in any way that I, that I can or any way I need to, to make it understood by the people who've been placed in my world, including the very youngest ones who've been placed in my charge and have no way of understanding that philosophical concept outside maybe of the realm of a Santa Claus who comes in at night on December the 24th, brings them presents that their parents didn't bring, and drinks some milk and has a bite of cookie, and maybe takes a carrot to one of the reindeers.
if and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we prepare for the gifts that you have brought to us in an annual celebration called Christmas, help me to remember the important parts of the Nativity story as separate from the less important parts. Let me not be the person who looks a gift horse in the mouth, in other words, and instead of spending time trying to comprehend things which are perhaps beyond the natural world, let me instead accept the gifts that I've been given as they were intended. And Lord, help me to be a positive force in the lives of others, not just my own children and one day their children, but even the children of people that I interact with on a regular basis, employees, employers, other people at church, other people in the neighborhood, as they find their own way to recognize the gifts that you've given and still celebrate in the cultural norm with their kids, their grandkids, and the rest of their families. It's a gift to just be a part of it. It's a gift to be a witness. Thank you for that gift, Lord. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. Don't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Next on Walk the Earth, whether it is acceptable to recognize and celebrate the holy days of other religions with those believers. Thanks for listening.